Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm talking with Peter Kramer. Peter is a psychiatrist and practiced psychiatry clinically and also provided uh, psychotherapy for over 40 years. Uh, He is a writer now full-time and emeritus professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University. He is the author of eight books, which include Ordinarily Well, Against Depression, Listening to Prozac, and his latest, Death of the Great Man, which is a novel, which is what we discuss. We talk about the inspiration for his new book, Major Themes. We talk about the Goldwater Rule and Diagnosis. We talk about the importance of truth in both clinically and and non-clinically. We talk about whether therapy is always valued for everyone. Uh, we talk a little bit about depression, uh, since he's done a lot of past uh, research and writing on that. We talk about some of the past and current state of depression research. Uh, we also talk about antidepressants and their efficacy, and many other topics. Uh, this was a this was a fun conversation to have, um, mostly because he's um, a clinician like myself, but he you know his new book was a novel, so really kind of you know, using a novel to talk about some clinical issues is, is super, super special, super cool. And I really enjoyed that. And of course, I, I really enjoyed it for talking about some of the other uh, aspects on depression and antidepressants, which he's written a lot about. Um, that's obviously always relevant for um, many, many people that are on antidepressants. And some of the noise about their efficacy just pops up every now and then. Um, Peter is is wonderful. He has so much wisdom, and uh, it really was a delight talking to him. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation, all the conversations, at convergingdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. So subscribe, follow, share widely. And uh, now I bring you Peter Kramer. I am here with Peter Kramer. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, to talking with you. Great. Um, okay, so you have uh, a new book out, uh, which is a novel. It's a very interesting novel. It's a fun novel. Um, and and then obviously you have uh, some previous work as well. So before we get into the new stuff, uh, why don't you just tell folks, uh, listeners who don't know who you are, kind of your, your elevator pitch, who you are, what your background is, what you do, and what you're currently up to. So uh, I trained as a psychiatrist and... Uh, Saw patients clinically for 40 years, initially hospital-based, but outpatient most of the time. And I started writing about the same time. Uh, So I've uh, published eight books and hundreds of essays, reviews, and so on. Uh, Best known for listening to Prozac, which has to do with the effect of medication on personality and uh, will appear in a 30th anniversary edition this fall. Wow. It's my wow. second book. Wow. Uh, my first unpublished book was a novel, and there are, not, you know, there are two other novels published, uh, one in 2001 and the current one, Death of the Great Man, which uh, plays off uh, Donald Trump's personality and political career in some ways. And... Um, in between, a lot of the focus is on depression and antidepressants, but about half the books are from the point of view of psychotherapy. About half have probably more emphasis on medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a nice way. I, I can't believe it's 30 years since uh, the, first, the second book or whatever. That's, that's wild to me. Um, 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. So we'll, we'll get into, I guess, some of those themes. I, I definitely want to uh, talk to you about some of that. But uh, the, the book at hand, Death of the Great Man, which you, which you mentioned, is uh, your most recent. It's a novel. Uh, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's very readable. It's, it's very, very nice. It's easy to follow. I, I liked it. Um, I guess the first question here was, why did you want to write this novel? Why did you want to write it now? And uh, I guess in the way in which you wrote it. Why, why, why all of the parts, I guess? So when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, uh, but uh, before he had taken office, I was in New York. I was about to meet with my editor. And all of a sudden, it struck me that this was going to be a period like the Vietnam War period where there was going to be a flowering of creativity related to current events. And I thought I should be part of it, that I should do my little piece and all my books are really from the point of view of a clinician. And I thought I would do a book that related to a clinician coerced into working uh, with a character, a narcissistic, buffoonish uh, autocrat. Mm. And I really saw the book in its final form almost at that point. I went and spoke to the editor who wanted nothing to do with it He <laughs> with a major publishing house. And they have a lot of trouble with timely fiction because it takes them a long time to produce books. Yep. And uh, he did not like the premise of the book. The book starts with the great man dead on a psychiatrist's couch. And the psychiatrist goes into hiding and uh, gives the backstory how it is, uh, this came to be insofar as he knows. And uh, the editor was very worried that the book was going to deal with assassination uh, for regime change, which it mm -hmm. does not, mm -hmm. uh, because the great man is is fairly unpleasant and also unsuccessful as a uh, leader. Uh, many people have reason to want him gone, but among those reasons really is not reversing uh, the course of, of governance. Uh, but anyway, uh, I went, I just felt this was what people should do. I did it. I'm surprised five years later that there has not been this outpouring of creative work, theater, opera, film, whatever built around, uh, the, the person and the, the, uh, presidency of Donald Trump. But anyway, here I am, uh, kind of out there, not entirely alone, but, but, uh, but there we are. Uh, and I, you know, I'm a great reader of uh, sort of international fiction. Mm -hmm. And one of the writers I love is Javier Marias, who just died this year. Uh, he was a probably Spain's great, greatest writer during part of his career, Madrid-based. Uh, Antonio Munoz Molina is, is probably his closest rival. Mm -hmm. And uh, Javier Marias begins some of his books with a lurid event like a murder uh, or betrayal, and then goes on to do some interesting work around issues like truthfulness and trust and how we know other people. And uh, so I modeled my book on on this kind of novel that I admire. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it starts with a death, right? And it's psychiatrist's couch. And it's, 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 there's a lot of like, kind of, I guess you could say, uh, uh, dark humor or things like that within uh, satirical in some ways, obviously, which is, which is really cool. How much, I guess with, with, with the story, I mean, I, I don't want to, I want people to read it, so I don't want to give it away too much, but how much do you, 
you know, did you want to kind of do this almost this thought experiment or this exercise with, I mean, it comes quite clear within the first, I don't know, 25 pages that, you know, you're thinking probably about, you know, Donald Trump or someone like him. Um, but how much did you want to kind of imagine what it would be like to to interact with him? There's scenes in there where the, the main character interacts with him. Um, and how much of it was really just fiction? And I guess behind all that, the fiction, nonfiction element is what was it that you wanted to try and and, and say through the the aspect of you know narrative and, and and fiction? What was the kind of thing? Was it just pointing a spotlight onto something, or was there more? I guess commentary that you wanted to say. So I think there are two elements. One is I as the Trump presidency progressed, I found it oppressive. Uh, even pre-COVID, and certainly during that COVID year, uh, that was a very dark year. And COVID year, there are three COVID years, but the first one especially starting in March 2020. And I wanted to convey the sense of oppression. I purposely made my narrator, uh, protagonist, Henry Farber, the psychiatrist, someone who doesn't follow the news too closely. I didn't want to have to mimic news stories or try to keep up with the news as it was changing over time. Um, The other thing I wanted to do was play off this story of the Goldwater rule, the idea that psychiatrists are not allowed to diagnose people. And the same holds mostly true for psychologists, not supposed to diagnose people they haven't interviewed personally and gotten permission from. And I thought, you know, I'm not someone as a doctor who's all that interested in diagnosis. Yes, if someone has sleep apnea, I want to know about it. There are certain things that require vigorous uh, technical interventions. But, um, you know, in terms of is it sociopathy, is it paranoia, is it narcissism, those kind of personality disorder distinctions don't matter to me too much. And I thought what I really love is doing what I do, which is existential psychotherapy. and to get in there and in imagination, sit very close to the great man, sit very close to uh, a, a person who has some of the uh, characteristics that we were living of, the person we were living under, and give readers a sense of what it's like to do therapy with someone fairly unpleasant. And, you know, as you say, this book is has sort of a thriller or mystery genre at the outside in the framework, but inside it is meant to be touching and moving, but also comical. There's a comical aspect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I do is I have the great man be extremely unpleasant to his therapist. Uh, And the therapist is this kind of Kantian, a very principled therapist, very devoted to his craft. And whatever is thrown at him in this Candide-like way, he thinks, well, how can I make use of this in the treatment? Uh, So, you know, he just has that constant sense throughout. Throughout, we are struggling, as he does, to figure out how we can actually know someone in a fully human way who does not present a very full human picture, you know, in in, in his interactions with people. Yeah, I certainly want to come to some of the more... Uh, I guess you could say clinical uh, uh, themes there. Uh, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll keep my clinician hat off for a minute, but uh, we'll we'll put it on in, in a sec. I, I do want to talk about the um, uh, it's a Goldwater rule, right? Is is the is the right. is the rule where 
unless you uh, this person is your patient or you've you know done a clinical interview or whatever whatever it may be in that way where they're direct uh, interaction, you basically can't. Um, you, I think it's a, it's a, at least for psychiatrists, it's an ethics that, and it's psychologists and most clinicians that you don't diagnose if the person isn't your like formally diagnosed unless the person is your patient or client. Um, I guess. And I, I'm with you about the whole diagnosis thing. We can talk about that in a second. But I guess with this rule, um, maybe just chat about like how it came about. And I guess in the context of somebody like Trump or another figure like that, or even more generally, um, is that something that we should still abide by? Or is there utility in trying to say, look, you know, this person isn't doesn't appear well or there there's something that is unfit about how they're 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 conducting themselves publicly et cetera et cetera just just the origins and then what how how valid it still is so you know back in the era when psychoanalysis really dominated psychiatry when Barry Goldwater ran for president in the sixties. A magazine, now defunct, which I think was called Focus, ran what it said was a poll. It invited psychiatrists to comment on Barry Goldwater's fitness for office based on his mental health. And a number of psychiatrists responded and said things like that he was psychotic or schizophrenic. And of course, he was a man who'd been a senator from Arizona for years, who clearly was functioning in a political job quite well. And uh, people were appalled. And uh, Goldwater successfully sued the magazine. I think he may have made some threats to sue the American Psychiatric Association. But in any case, eight or 10 years later, they came out with this rule, which is nicknamed the Goldwater Rule, saying just what you said, that you're not allowed to um, make these psychiatric conclusions in public about people unless you've interviewed them and have their permission. And of course, in the book, in a funny way, the psychiatrist who's this very moral figure does get permission but anyway that's that's sort of a, a you know so the you know when trump ran a number of psychiatrists and psychologists thought that there was this other duty which is a duty to warn the public mm-hmm. and in psychiatry in very limited circumstances there are duties to warn so that if your patient says you know i'm going to kill uh, joe or jane and it looks serious to you, and it's based on a mental illness, you have a duty to warn Joe or Jane. Uh, and this is so the, uh, the Tarasov ruling. The Tarasov uh, rules yeah, yeah. for a, a legal case. And so um, the, these uh, experts said that they had a duty to warn the public, and they did it in sort of a backing-in way. They didn't quite break the rules of their profession, but they made it pretty clear uh, this is a. There was a book edited by a Yale psychiatrist, Bandy X. Lee, in which a dozen or two uh, experts all but diagnosed Donald Trump as a way of warning the public. And um, you know, I'll tell you, I have a strange thought and a, and a less strange thought about this. Mm-hmm. My less strange thought is the main function of the Goldwater rule is to protect the profession from itself, because you would have left-wing and right-wing psychiatrists making all kinds of claims about whoever is running for office. Uh, And and really, that doesn't do the profession any good, and I don't know that it does the public much good either. Mm -hmm. 
my stranger thought is this argument will fade because the diagnoses that the experts make are based on the public record, right? They're based on videos and uh, biographies and uh, speeches and uh, news reporting. And I think very soon bots and AI will do that job. Mm -hmm. There was just an article in the New York Times about something called Machiavellian narcissism, which is not a diagnosis I've ever heard of. It's not in the manuals. But the idea was that certain corporations headed by Machiavellian narcissists had gone bankrupt or done very poorly because the CEOs were convicted of fraud or accused of fraud. And now investors wanted to know if a CEO was a Machiavellian narcissist. And I thought, you know, bot or AI could do a pretty good rough and ready job of warning you about this. Now, I don't know whether this actually causes corporations to fail or succeed. I don't know what the predictive value is. But I think in time, the experts like psychologists and psychiatrists, clinical social workers and so on, nurses will be pushed in back into the role of explaining to the public what these diagnoses mean and for better, for worse. And you can imagine all kinds of dystopian scenarios. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, show, saying how people's behavior matches up with diagnoses is going to be kids work in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I, I, I teach diagnosis to, to graduate students and, and the more I read both in, in, you know, various journals and I think even theoretically, you know, diagnosis is a a means to an end. Uh, I think it's it's a shorthand, and I think we're we're learning a lot more about what it means to be disorderly or to have disorders. And it's less of a kind of a discrete thing and more of a, definitely a continuum, which is kind of how DSM five you know is organized. I, I really just don't find it says a whole lot. Um, no, I mean, I want to say I, I'm a progressive left wing, I would say. Uh, and uh, but I want to say something, say about John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. You know, if it it certainly is possible that someone from a distance could say, look, post stroke Senator Fetterman just has aphasia, but he's as fully alert and competent as ever he was or could say, you know, this goes beyond aphasia. Really, he's thinking less well. Yeah. And and I don't know that I could make that diagnosis. But, you know, that is the kind of thing that I think, you know, we have to think about. Like, do, do we want – if we knew that, would we want to make the statement? Uh, it, it has much more specificity than is someone more sociopathic or more narcissistic or, you know, more paranoid. Uh, or, or borderline. Uh, so that I, th- I think there are, I think it's going to be an interesting time because yeah. it may be that from speech patterns, you could make that kind of distinction. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree about the the Goldwater rule in terms of it, it could lend itself to being kind of politicized, right? As you were saying, like the left is going to, you know, say for, for folks that they're against and the right for the folks they're against, but also I think that there's this problem with it of diagnosing folks that, you know, aren't your patient or folks you don't know. It's because a lot of times there's a public persona, like knowing somebody from interviews and from speeches, 
I mean, people are demonstrably different when they're in private, behind closed doors, with their friends, with their family. Right. So I mean, that that is sort of the perspective of the novel, right? That we all know what uh, toxic populists are like in public. Right. But in private, do they also lie to their wife? Right. Uh, do they only lie in public? You know, is it strategic? Is it habitual? Is it compulsive? Uh, so, you know, that is really what the book is, um, you know, is focused on is that distinction. But I think also following up what you say, you know, in this third run for president, the current run that Trump is doing, you know, it's very different than diagnosing him in 2016. Mm-hmm. Voters know who Trump is for practical purposes, right? They know whether they like his personality. They know whether they like his style of governance. Now, it could be you could say, well, he's going to do worse this time. I noticed that he's, you know, more demented than he used to be or something like that. I can imagine comments that that move the conversation a little bit. But on the whole, telling people that uh, uh, Donald Trump, and I'm not making this diagnosis, but for example, saying that he has malignant narcissism, doesn't add much to the conversation because right. people already know his personality, disordered or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that element, I mean, it just opens a kind of the Fetterman uh, example is a good one. It just opens a, a box that I just don't think. I mean, I think there could be some utility to it, but I think it just opens this box that is hard to put back in. You know, <laughs> are we going to give, you know, cognitive assessments to people that want to run for office? You know, are we, you know, people talk about Biden's age, they talk about Fetterman after his, his, his brain injury. This has always kind of been the case. I think of, you know, Woodrow Wilson after, you know, he had a pretty serious stroke. Um, And, and really the question is what's their capacity? I mean, obviously there's a, a type of ageism that I think that goes on with people that are in Supreme Court or for the Senate or for the House. And maybe some right. of that I mean, is fair to question, but I just think you're going to start having these types of arbitrary cutoffs of, well, you know, not quite cutting it. So, you know, you can't do this job anymore. And I just don't know where that goes or what that conversation no, is. Like. I mean, they're constant examples. So Ronald Reagan uh-huh. almost certainly had Alzheimer's during the second term. And either you liked that term or you didn't. I mean, I, Republicans seem to think that Reagan did very well. Uh, you know, with George Bush, there was a question whether he just had uh, difficulty uh, putting a sentence together or whether he wasn't yeah. that smart. Yeah. Uh, and you could make the argument that he should have been more nimble or uh, should have been more resistant to people like uh, Cheney. Uh you know, during his first term. Um, But yes, I think in a way, politics separates itself from diagnosis pretty readily. And people who we have lots of questions about have certainly governed in a way that about half the country likes pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of what I'm mentioning and what you mentioned those examples is some element of cognitive abilities. But I think the case with Trump and like in, in the character in your book is this element of personality of sorts. And, um, you know, there's much debate about personality disorders, uh, still, but I think the problem becomes is, well, I mean, there's some research behind this that shows that elements of the dark triad of narcissism, if you will, is 
sort of adaptive in many of these places. Right. People that are running big organizations, you know, need a an element of Machiavellianism or or an element of a subclinical psycho um, uh, psychopathy, um, which you know that's more of an anthropological question or a social psych question. But I guess it's one of those things where you it's know, like I, I found it in psychiatry. I mean, that I had many teachers and mentors I loved who were fantastic. Uh, psychotherapists and the person heading the department tended not to be one of those. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right, right. And, and maybe, you know, was better at fundraising and uh, right. putting out fires and so on. I, with Trump, there's a different problem, I think, which is that he lies all the time. And I think because the of the bully pulpit, because uh, the president sets an example for the nation in certain ways, I do worry that lying has become much more permissible, uh, certainly in politics. I think, you know, if you go back to Barry Goldwater, there were lots of sort of, in my mind, nutty people who supported him, people who had outright paranoid views, who uh, were right wing and in disturbing ways. But the politicians didn't join in, right? The politicians who benefited from the support of those people didn't actually mimic them. Whereas Trump is unafraid to express or use dog whistles, whatever, for fairly extreme or quite extreme points of view. And so one of the themes of the novel has to do with the role of truth-telling in a culture. And of course, for the psychiatrist, it's a very close, intimate culture in which lying is a constant. You know, what? how moral can we be? Do we have to be in the face of deception? And there are lots of other characters in the book, in particular, the great man's wife, mm -hmm. who do things that we might not approve of in the interest of keeping the psychiatrist on track. Mm -hmm. They feel that they have to cross certain moral boundaries because the great man is crossing so many boundaries. And that is the question is, what is ethical behavior in the face of a leader who is quite unafraid to uh, be unethical. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important question, something that we've all, I think, kind of been wrestling with of, as a public and the many people that are in public service. But I was listening to something recently. I can't quite recall uh, where it was at the moment. But somebody made this distinction that Trump doesn't lie. Um, Trump's a bullshitter, which right. is which is a little different. Um, right. It's a, kind of a you know, splitting hairs, but you know, lying is I'm going to say something to cover up something else. And then I got to do another lie to cover that one. And, and there's the cover up piece of it. Bullshitting is I don't give a shit. I don't care. I'm just going to say something that's obviously a falsehood and then another one and not care if you like it or not. And right. I think that's I mean, important. No regard for the truth, only right. regard for his own advantage. And yes, yeah, so we don't know whether he believes he won the election and I don't know, you know, that is something debated in the book a great deal, whether the great man believes uh, the things he says that clearly are false. Uh, and does it matter to us? I mean, does it matter whether right. Trump is capable of believing these falsehoods or, uh, you know, whether uh, he, he clearly his relationship to the truth is very complex. It, it you know, does not involve respecting it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I find Trump, uh, if if you want to think dynamically about this, I find he's like pure id. <laughs> and and he has this way of like making all of the worst perversions of ourselves okay. 
acceptable, fine. You know, I mean, that's that a is what readers have said about this novel, that the great man is pure id and uh, is humorous, I hope, in that way. And Henry Farber, the psychiatrist, is, you know, so much ego uh, that is ego in the sense of rational, uh, cautious, mm-hmm. caring uh, that uh, he's he's humorous in that way. He's sort of overboard and mm-hmm. You know, to remain that way in the face of this period is really what some of the humor in the book is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned it kind of in the beginning. And so I'm just kind of curious, um, I guess, on, on a few points here. But, you know, that you were kind of comparing, you know, the period of 2016 to kind of like another you know, watershed moment of sorts, some sort of similar to kind of Vietnam. There's going to be all this stuff produced and some but maybe less so in some ways. I guess for you, your perspective on things, how do you feel, I guess, generally as a society, if you think to, I'll say 2015 to currently 2023, so eight years of, you know, we had a crazy 2016 election, a lot of rules just thrown out the window, Trump gets elected. You know, it's a wild four years, so many things. He's impeached twice, January 6th. We get the election of 2020 uh, and all of the things around that. And I just, and then, and then right in the middle of that, you have, or right towards the tail end of that, you have this global pandemic and, and a lot of the, the kind of, I guess the way as a society, we got used to just like, well, nothing's really true. Nothing's really true. We just uploaded that to, you know, the, uh, the you know COVID nineteen and we you know the virus and where does it come from and do vaccines work and all yeah. of these other things that just kind of yeah. carried on to that as a society. Right. And those eight years, I mean, or these past eight years, where where how do you think what's the psychological impact of all of these things right. to us as a society? I mean, I I think that is the danger of validating sort of uh normalizing untruth is that it goes from politics to science and health and uh all of a sudden the culture can't deal with the challenges it faces mm-hmm. right i mean we i forget the how much more covid we had than canada but i mean it was many times more deaths uh it's it, it's we <laughs> We sacrificed uh, lots of our fellow citizens, uh, you know, in, as a result of uh, uh, lying becoming, you know, a normal part of life and letting people who believed lies, uh, um, you know, take over local healthcare systems and so on. It, it's, I, I think also, you know, it's not that there isn't a paranoid streak. People have written about it in American politics and American history. It's not that around Andrew Jackson and Andrew Johnson, you know, there wasn't lots of agitation and violence mm-hmm. uh, and legitimation of violence. But we're a mature country. You know, we were a growing, developing country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but long post the Civil War, when we are the leading economy in the world, uh, to be Governed by irrationality is really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, again, I, I, I mean, I, I obviously do not like Trump by any means, but and I, so I don't, I don't want to give him almost 
too too much credit indirectly, but I can't help but see the role that his mainstreaming of doubting truth has really impacted a lot of our other institutions, media, journalism, science, health, et cetera, on and on. I mean, is it too much to say he was an instrumental central figure in that or or was that going to happen anyways because of social media? You know, well, it's an interesting thought experiment or subject for a uh, counterfactual novel. What would have happened if Hillary Tr- uh, Clinton had been elected president, which certainly was, you know, pretty close to happening, give or take an FBI revelation, right? right, right. And give or take the New York Times uh, front page of your emails. Right. She might have been elected. It, it wasn't, you know, that it was impossible. In fact, it was entirely plausible. People thought it was right. going to happen, right, right, right. Uh, which was why Comey felt free to do what he did, why Obama's held back for a while. Anyway, um, so, you know, what would have happened then? And it's certainly given how angry the Republican Party was and how much people hated her. It was bound to be a tumultuous time. But at least there would have been someone who could be on television at any point, uh, who could speak calmly to the nation, who could bring science to things like COVID. You know, I think I think it would have been different. I think it would have been, you know, and I, I have misspoken about this in the past. It it I think it would have been very hard. I, I love Hillary Clinton. In fact, she I was in one of these rope lines and I gave her my prior book, Ordinarily Well. <laughs> and, you know, she said, oh, I read about this in the New York Times book review. I mean, this was somebody who, wow. you know, was uh clearly more qualified to govern and also who had some intellectual curiosity uh, and uh, and also, of course, authors just like that. But um, yes, I, I think however much it would have baited Republicans to have her in office, we would have had less of this mainstreaming of irrationality than we have now. That's my... You know, but I'm not the authority on this. And in fact, you know, I think one reason I wrote fiction, I think most of the writing about Donald Trump has been nonfiction because there's plenty to research, there's plenty to reveal. Uh, and I think fiction, there was a book by Dave Eggers that was a Trump pastiche, but fiction has sort of gotten short shrift. But I was in fiction because, um, you know, I'm not qualified to to do mm-hmm. the rest. Right, right. Uh, but I having given all those caveats, I don't think this was inevitable. Everything seems inevitable when it's happened. Mm-hmm. I do think the company, the country had some reckoning about deaths of despair, yeah. uh, the opioid crisis, unemployment in the same areas where there was an opioid crisis, what is going on in Appalachia. Uh, and, you know, of course the election to some extent turned on Hillary Clinton's mistakes in speaking in uh, Appalachia. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, those are the concrete economic, sociopolitical problems. The problem of making outrageousness a uh, foremost political style, I think that's on Trump. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's it's probably mixed, um, but it is an interesting thing. And I I know some people have said, like, well, you know, uh, rather get all that stuff out of out of uh, 
the kind of uh, behind the the curtain, all the implicit stuff that yeah. you know the party had, and let's just get it all out there. I don't know. I I, I I'm I'm really I really a lot of value in that curtain. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. And I don't. My biggest my my biggest and central uh, disheartened kind of thing about it is. You know th- this this really poor uh, trust in institutions. I, I think, of course, institutions always need to be worked on and need to be reformed. But it's really harming us that we literally cannot have any institution we trust. You just can't run a country with 330 million people. That's you know very big globally in terms of foreign affairs and economics, with no institutions that nobody trusts. I, I just just yeah. terribly dangerous. It's just terribly dangerous. And that's that's to me his biggest fault if i have to pick one i think it's the biggest one so let me ask about some of the the clinical stuff that you deal with in in the book is one question is is i think you pose it in the book somewhere of you know should we should we rescue a man whose continued existence endangers us all it's kind of like that uh, thought experiment it's like you know you can go back in time and you know you kill off baby hitler you know would you do that instead of him um i guess the, the 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 bigger question here is does everybody regardless of their actions deserve empathy and compassion because they're a human being do you what do you what what do you what do you sit with this right so this is one of the themes of the book hitler comes up a lot in my own life my uh parents are uh, holocaust emigres many family members died and Hitler's a, certainly a central figure in my imagination. And in the book, this comes up a lot, both um, uh, the uh, Henry Farber's late wife, especially, and I think to some extent, um, uh, the great man's wife reference Hitler, like what would you allow Hitler to function better if that's the risk of psychotherapy? Yep. So my protagonist is uh, sort of straight down the line physician. You know, you bind up John Wilkes Booth's wounds. Uh, you, you, uh, uh, you know, in a Kantian way, you tell the truth, even in situations where you worry that telling the truth will disadvantage people you care about. And so uh, the, the hero has no compunctions about doing psychotherapy with the great man the premises he's brought in he's an expert he's uh, in the way that i had a book that was very popular when i was young henry farber has a book about insomnia that was the bestseller when he was young but he's now treating paranoid men and he's sort of the uniquely the figure that can be brought in to treat the great man because the great man has insomnia he's willing to be treated for insomnia but secretly you know we're all hoping his paranoia or whatever it is will get less and, um, you know, the protagonist just does not question that premise. He has a sense that psychotherapy is useful for anyone. And I think a sort of modesty that is, even if it's not good for everyone, we can't predict what the outcome will be. We do have to hope that if our patients uh, get better, they will do better things. What about this idea? This is something that I've, if you would have asked me when I first started, you know, practicing clinically, I would have said, yeah, of course. But now I, I'm, 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 uh, 
less sanguine about it. This idea that should therapy be provided to people that may need it but aren't necessarily ready for it. And I don't think there's some magic moment where you're ready for therapy. But I definitely think people, again, if you want to take the kind of analytic tradition, there's a, there's a lot of resistance maybe. And if they can't lower their defenses and push past it, they just might not be at that place to to do the work. Do, do, what do you think about this? Well, you know, I also have done some training of residents and medical students and so on. And uh, I was... Uh, trained in the era of, you know, there are no bad patients, only mm-hmm. unskilled doctors. <laughs> and, right. uh, I, you know, that if you can't do in those days, sort of uh, down the line, Freudian psychoanalysis and their supportive psychotherapy, and that there's an art, and I hated losing patients, honestly, oh, yeah. anybody who came to my office my goal was to engage them. My first book is called Moments of Engagement, and it's really about hand-tailoring therapy mm-hmm. to patients and not working from manuals, but mm-hmm. really figure and and ha- having an interest in a variety of psychotherapies. When I trained, it was also sort of the uh, flowering of these many psychotherapies built around ideas of justice, ideas of family life, uh, and um, uh, couples concepts. So, uh, you know, th- that's sort of my private view of this. And if nothing else, to give the patient some sample of what this attentiveness feels like, even if the patient goes away and comes back years later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another one of these themes of the book is that at certain point, without giving too much away, at certain points, the great man dismisses Henry Farber. And Henry Farber has just had this experience a lot. He deals with paranoid men. They fire you all the time. And Farber is just convinced that the therapy will resume and that he, in the interim, you know, while he's not doing the therapy, should be uh, sort of reviewing the case, daydreaming, thinking about ways things could have gone different, preparing himself for the moment when the therapy resumes. Hmm. I guess that kind of sort of following up around that kind of thematically is, do you think we should treat all clients or patients the same? Uh, You know, how much is it individualized, but how much is it that we're not showing favoritism or things like that from a clinician standpoint? Right. So how do you feel about this? Yes. Part of the humor in the book has to do with this question of the VIP patient. And obviously, having been dragooned into the treatment, poor Henry Farber has now only one patient. And the patient is the most powerful person in the world. Uh, So, you know, it's hard to see more of a VIP patient. He keeps trying to treat the great man as you would someone off the street in Providence, you know, Mm -hmm. or a a prisoner, a, a underclass, working class uh, person in a prison. He's just going to treat the great man the same way. And I think, you know, it certainly is true that lots of research says we should do that. Uh, That, you know, that if you make special exceptions, you extend the hour, you, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, treat someone in the middle of the night or whatever it is. If you do special things for VIP patients, it does nobody any good or only uh, feeds their narcissism. The other side of that, though, I think, and I think I'm agreeing with you, I, I, is is that, of course, 
we treat everybody differently. We treat people according to their needs. And that, you know, to me, that is what makes psychotherapy special is that we make it fresh every time. Mm Yes, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think, I think aspirationally, that's what we're shooting for. But I, I think that our, you know, obviously our unconscious uh, counter-transferences, sometimes I think we have to use them well, but I think they can sometimes get in the way. I mean, I think where it's, it's you know, you're, well, why am I, you know, extending this time or, you know, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever. And, and you might not notice it in the moment, but then it comes out. something strange toward the end of my career. I stopped seeing people shortly before COVID, but it was in a planned way. I had took two years in my mind, kind of one year in terms of actually making things happen, shut down the practice. Yeah. And, and maybe this is part of the reason, I don't know, toward the end, I never had any openings because I'm, you know, an author and people know me. Uh, but the, you know, dean of the college or the president of the, you know, head of the board at Brown or head of my department would say, look, there's a special patient. Can you make room for this person? Uh, you know, we really would value it. They really want to see you. And the result was I, you know, I practice was enriched for very wealthy young people. And I thought, is it really true that if they don't overcome their narcissism, they will pay a price? What is the price? A lot of the things that these kids did that, you know, maybe would worry you, they were going to get away with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they may were, maybe we're going to get it. You know, we now have this wealth that is generational wealth where, you know, that you, your kids and your grandkids are never going to have to think about money. It's in the billions. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's true they will still pay a price if they're drinking and taking drugs and, right. uh, you know, humiliating their romantic partners. But it's also true that some of the things that really worry us as therapists, maybe, you know, from a sociological point of view, we shouldn't be worried about them, even though psychologically they, you know, they uh, set off an alarm for us. Yeah, I mean, it, it is... <laughs> It's a, it's a balancing act, right? I mean, it, it certainly certainly is, especially when you know you have different types of folks that have you know different access to certain means, and it's interesting. But I think um, I think you probably agree that underlying all of it is the human condition, and uh, you know we are all human. Some have different you know, so quote unquote advantages, but uh, it's the human nonetheless. Um, Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, depression. I wanted to to ask you a little bit about this. I know you've done some work and obviously written about it, uh, especially uh, antidepressants. Uh, I haven't talked about that much on the podcast, so it'd be, it'd be nice to get your thoughts here. Um, okay, at the time, so you mentioned your earlier book, you know, th- you know, thirtieth anniversary, all that. Early nineties. We'll, we'll come to SSRIs in, in you know Prozac in particular in a minute. At the time when you wrote this, what was the working knowledge, I guess, about the medical and evolutionary theories surrounding depression? And if we fast forward all the way till now, I, I know you said that you're, you know, less, you know, in the clinical space now, but uh, what do we know now about depression over the past 30, 40 years? So right. what's your thoughts? Yeah. So uh, I I don't know that our global sense of what depression is as an entity 
has changed so much over the course of my career. I think people are much more interested in evolutionary psychology and psychiatry now than they were then. But the people writing in that field, you know, said fairly similar things to then to what's being said now. And the idea was that, you know, maybe in times of scarcity, it makes sense for some mammals to uh, withdraw and uh, not spend as much energy seeking food because there's not as much uh, food to be found. And uh, so that depression is sort of a signal to the animal to conserve its energy. There were, uh, you know, other theories about hierarchy dominance. And if you're uh, not the dominant animal in the pack or troop, uh, perhaps you shouldn't challenge the leader uh, without a lot of support. Uh, and uh, or unless the leader is weakened, so that depression was sort of a signal to, uh, you know, accept lower status. I, I, I don't, you know, there's another way to look at depression, and this is a big theme of my book, Against Depression, which is maybe it's just an illness, right? Uh, even though it's very common, uh, there's a metaphor called the spandrel, so that when you uh, build a cathedral, and it has certain uh, curved shapes for the arches, you're going to get these little quasi-triangular spaces between the arches. And yes, if there are 12 of them, they're going to have the 12 apostles in them. But the church wasn't designed to create those. Those are kind of stuck in after the fact. And maybe if you design a species for attachment, and uh, you're going to end up with this kind of negative affect in the face of loss, and that uh, if they're designed or some people are going to get stuck in that position, right? They won't just be grieving. They'll have pathological grief. They'll have it in response to smaller stimuli. It will last too long and it won't be adaptive. And I think depression for in the main is maladaptive. Anyway, I, I don't think that all has changed that much. Uh, the medications also, you know, medications uh, were developed sort of serendipitously in the 1950s and into the 60s, uh, the MAOIs was one kind of antidepressant which were developed from anti-tubercular drugs. It was noticed that some of these patients in the sanatoria uh, were more upbeat, and it was wondered whether these anti-tubercular drugs were or could be developed into uh, antidepressants. Uh, and uh, similarly for some of the antihistaminic Drugs they were uh, developed to be antipsychotic, and some of the drugs that were meant to treat schizophrenia ended up being observed that they really treated uh, depression. So that's how they came to be. That gave rise to the theory that what those drugs did might be at the base of these disorders. Uh, so that things like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, we wondered whether they were at the base of depression. These theories were never very tightly held. There's lots of debunking of these amine theories of depression yeah. by people who don't appreciate that the field itself always had some evidence that they had to be flawed. It couldn't be fully true. But anyway, that's sort of a I'll, I'll stop talking there and, and see what the next, <laughs> yeah. the next direction is. But it, was, it was sort of on, on that that. Uh, reference about serotonin hypothesis and, and antidepressants, but but before I come to that, just one last thing is conceptually about depression. So yeah, I mean yes, it's an illness. I think you know people are going to continue to fight about it, but it's it's so common. It's a very common thing again in in the world of disorders, if you will. 
Um, you know, when I see people clinically, I think most clinicians, you know, depression, anxiety is going to be the most common thing, at least here in the West. Um, and I guess the question for that is, is, you know, is it kind of like how we, we say for a lot of things, eh, there's some genetic involvement, some environmental, some, you know, uh, um, you know, there's a psychosocial stressor, uh, et cetera. Is it, is that all of, the, all of that's in the mix here or, or do you see it differently? I guess, currently, um, about no, where I, we understand I, I depression. Think that, I think that's how the field has always seen depression, that it's a mix of early adversity, current adversity, genetics, uh, and, um, you know, and the same probably is true of diabetes and, and, and uh, mm -hmm. tuberculosis that, you know, although we think of them as largely bodily, their behavioral components, their psychological sure. components. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Um, you know, that said, major depression, serious depression is very harmful. And against depression, I say that there are such marked effects on uh, the way the heart functions, the blood elements, the bone, the brain, uh, the hormonal system, that a culture that had no concept of mental illness would still have reason to call depression a disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is a multi-system disease, a mm -hmm. lot like some of the other diseases we've mm -hmm. mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing I want to stress, if we have an audience here, is that antidepressants work. You know, there is... Psychiatry is unfortunate in that there is a large anti-psychiatry movement yeah. made up of uh, yeah. disgruntled patients, uh, competitive colleagues, people with different philosophical views about the matters I've just discussed. And there's no anti-nephrology, you know, there's no anti-dermatology. It's only among the medical specialties, psychiatry, that... Uh, faces this. And the result, a lot of nonsense gets promulgated. And my latest nonfiction book, um, Ordinarily Well, is about the evidence that antidepressants work and about the ways it's been distorted. And I think it's very convincing. I think people who read Ordinarily Well do come away thinking, yes, our doubts really have been fomented by some arguments in bad faith. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely want to ask you about that. I'll just say one thing about depression generally, <clears throat> clinical depression. Uh, I think there's, there's a whole other space about uh, non-clinical versus clinical depression. And, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot to be said about that, so, but not here, at the, I guess, for the moment. But in terms of clinical depression, especially when you're looking at moderate to severe depression, what most people don't know is, is, is that, you know, Severe depression can have, you know, psychotic features. It can have catatonia. I mean, it can be really, really, really destructive. Um, me personally, I mean, I, in my day job, you know, I've worked with a lot of clinical patients. I worked in inpatient hospitals, psychosis, you know, schizophrenia disorders were kind of my thing. And I really enjoy that work in that population. And I've worked with pretty much most of the disorders in the DSM at this point. Uh, all age groups, and sometimes people ask me and say, "You know, what's the what's the what's the toughest population for you? You know, is is it the schizophrenia, schizoaffective personality disorders, DID? You know, people always want to know these kind of mm -hmm. interesting things." And I say, "Nope, it's depression. It's always the hardest. It is so. Now, why difficult. is that? Uh, 
uh, I think clinically, <clears throat> it is so hard. The amount of anhedonia that people have, the amount of just the lack of motivation. I think when they when they're really in a depressive episode, and it's you know a mild depression is, is is you know it's workable, but when it's moderate to severe, that sense of powerlessness and hopelessness, and sitting with it with somebody. Knowing there's no magic wand you can just, you know, move about to just make them feel better. And even if they're compliant with their medication and even if they've been doing that for a while and you have all the coping skills and you have all the interventions, there's many times in a depressive episode, you sit with that client and feel what it's like to feel powerless. It's hard. It is the hardest thing. Again, that's not every week. That's not every client. No, but my mentor, Lester Havens, used to talk about the imprint of depression. He said you could mm. come into a room, you know, mm. in the days when people were, say, interviewed in front of one-way mirrors and a group would watch right. the interview. Right, right. But he would come into that room behind the one-way mirror and he could diagnose the patient based on the look of the on the faces of the observers. Yeah. I, I think differently about this. I, I think I must have had a special sympathy with depression. I, I did, I think, pretty well with it. And um, it, it's funny in a way that I became known for listening to Prozac, which, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. is not really a book about depression, but it, it sort of made me a specialist in depression that people wanted to come and see me. To me, the toughest condition is paranoia, because I think there's so mm-hmm. little to do to treat it, and it tends to be progressive. Mm-hmm. And contrary to uh, the popular view of it, Paranoid people can be very sweet. They can be very oh, yeah. lovely. Oh, and you yeah. just feel terrible for them. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, part of the reason I built the novel around paranoia, uh, you know, beyond it being sort of an amusing view of this, the great man, is that, um, you know, I think in reality, I had so little purchase on it. And uh, you know, Henry Farber is one of these geniuses with depression. He, mm-hmm. my, my, my fictional psychiatrist does pretty well with it and his patients do pretty well with each other. Um, I, I, I tried to give a very sympathetic view of depression with fairly ill mm-hmm. patients, in, mm-hmm. you know, in the book. But for me, the, that the hardest was, was paranoia. And by the way, I was in my training, I was picked out as being good with paranoia. I was, I was assigned a number of paranoid patients because in front of the one way mirror on the other side, I was observed to have a fair tolerance for it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which probably is true, but it made it all the more heartbreaking if you couldn't make good progress. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, so, you know, we, we could switch roles, I guess, at some point. I mean, yeah, I mean, paranoia is always for me just, I'm comfortable with it clinically and working with patients have that. And I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I really, I just, I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy it. And I know that's not for everybody, um, but I don't know. I, I find it sort of straightforward. It's, 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 there's a lot of supportive stuff, but then there's a lot of the behaviorism stuff. And then there's a lot of the cognitive stuff. And then, but even, even before all of that, I think that their humanity shines through pretty easily for me. And I just, I see it and I grab onto it and then I stay with it. And then yeah. it just, it just, it, it, you know, carries you. So I, well, that's good. But, but I mean, as long as you are someone who thinks, well, the patient has this and I'm not going to reverse it. And right, yeah, right. I, I do think being kindly with paranoid patients is very effective because often the world is not. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't mean that we're doing nothing, but I did find it 
heartbreaking if people slip more and more into delusion. No, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's it, it can be challenging, no, without a doubt. But I mean, I think it's it's interesting how it rests for some people and uh, and working with them. Okay, so antidepressants. I want to ask you about this. So, um, there are at least five major categories of antidepressants, right? SSRIs, SNRIs, TCAs, MAOIs, atypicals. Is this right? At least five major. Yeah, and then as you know, there are the newer things like ketamine and the, uh, the psychedelics. Psychedelics, and yeah. uh, and there are going to be many more. There's some being developed that work on the opioid system. There's some that relate to hormones that change during pregnancy, mm. and um, so we're going to have quite a collection, uh, you know, of any of of biological systems involved. Uh, yeah that antidepressants work on so i guess let's let's do ssris because those are still i think some of the most common you know most people if you're first diagnosed let's say you're you're in your mid to late 20s you have a depressive episode a psychiatrist is going to give you a meet and greet dose of you know fluoxetine you know prozac you know etc i mean you know there might be other things too but this is kind of a standard kind of you know uh story here I haven't read ordinary well. So does it really work? Is it just placebo? I mean, is, is, is there, you're taking 10 milligrams of fluoxetine or 20 milligrams and, you know, I feel better and I feel the fog is lifted and I can, I can be more functional. I mean, is that, what's really going on there? What's really happening? How, how, how do we feel confident that it is working? Well, I mean, it, it works. The, the objective evidence shows that it works and it, it, you know, there are the, all kinds of extreme cases where people are given uh, cancer treatments that cause depression and that if you pretreat them with SSRIs, they don't get the depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not a great mystery and it's not by a small amount. Antidepressants work quite well. The, the current theory of antidepressant action has to do with neuroresilience. It has to do with the brain being able to reshape itself. So that depression is sort of a stuck switch problem. You're in this position where you have trouble taking in new information. You repeat yourself. You're feeling these terrible feelings. And um, that whether it's psychotherapy or ECT or antidepressants, that if you don't induce neuroresilience, you know, you're not going to get change. And the there's some interesting models of neuroresilience. One of them is amblyopia, so that if you're young and your eye has to be patched for uh, um, you know reasons related to eye function, uh, you're not going to have um, uh, binocular vision in the mm-hmm. same way that that. Uh, children growing up do who get the use of both their eyes. And uh, the reason is there's a critical period for uh, developing uh, the coordination of the eyes in childhood. And in mice, you know, if you create amblyopic mice in adulthood, if you patch the working eye and give them a medicine like uh, Prozac, they will get back their ability to coordinate the use of the two eyes. The mm. weak eye will join in and get stronger. Mm. So that that's what the sort of the model of neuroresilience is. And it's thought that there's something similar to that going on uh, in depression. Now, 
the whole model of what leads to neuroresilience is changing at the moment. So in this new edition of Listen to Your Prozac that's coming out in September, I have an introduction about sort of the cultural setting and what's changed since uh, 1993. And the uh, afterward is, is about how the science has changed. And one way that the science has changed is this very strange thing, which is there's a kind of receptor in the brain called track B, never mind what it is. But it turns out that serotonin and even more the psychedelics attached to track B and that that seems to be the move, the biological move that creates the resilience, the Mm -hmm. ability to uh, make new cells in the brain, form new connections between cells. And it's really thrown into question what the role of serotonin is. At the same time, there are other lines of research, you know, that scientists are getting better looking right in the brain of living people. And one of the preliminary experiments looking in the brain of depressed and not depressed people and giving them a challenge that should make them release serotonin finds that depressed people release less serotonin in response to these challenges in the living brain. Hmm. So the serotonin theory is not going away, but I think our understanding of where it's not in doubt that antidepressants cause the brain to be able to learn better and, and repair itself in certain ways. But, you know, where serotonin fits in the link of events is very much up in the air at the moment. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about that. Was, you know, many, for many people, the serotonin hypothesis, they consider it dead. It's like, nope, we, we don't, we just, that just yeah, doesn't not work at anymore. All dead. I understand this. Joanna Moncrief had this article. <laughs> you know, A, <laughs> if it were dead, it wouldn't mean that antidepressants don't work. They work based on evidence that shows they work. And B, no, not dead. Yeah, I, I have. An, I'll be curious to to get that that copy of the book. Uh, my copy's old anyway, so maybe that afterward is is much longer than people expected. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's not the two page afterward. It's the it's the twenty page chapter you've added. Yeah. <laughs> um. And I guess what about these lifestyle issues? You know, that related to mood regulation, exercise, diet, sleep, etc. You know, could could lifestyle again? I'm not saying it replaces yeah. meds and yeah, meds work, I mean, but what's let, the role of that? Yes. So, look, no one's the worst for a good experience, and clearly, people who are doing badly have lost their jobs, who uh, have married poorly, and so on. If all of a sudden they manage to get themselves into a terrific, supportive setting, uh, are going to do better in terms of the recurrence of their depression. Mm-hmm. If if you know they have sort of a career of depression. On the other hand, if you believe that lifestyle changes treat depression, you're really going to believe that antidepressants treat depression. The evidence for antidepressants is much better. So first of all, social surround is very complicated. There's something called the cost of caring, especially for women, so that women who have lots of friends may suffer lots of losses and end up having more depression than if they had less social support. You know, what looks like social support can be a burden. So the sort of sociological research on social support and depression turns out to be very complicated. It's not sort of a slam dunk. Mm. The the other thing that's not a slam dunk is exercise. Everybody loves exercise. I feel better when I exercise. My patients feel better. 
if I can get them to exercise and they exercise, maybe. But as to whether antidepressants, whether uh, exercise treats depression, we don't know as much, nearly as much about this as people think, as the New York Times thinks. <laughs> there are lots of complications. Uh, when the National Health Service told doctors to de-emphasize uh, antidepressants and instead first give people encouragement to exercise and free passes to gyms and exercise programs, they really found that the people getting that quasi-treatment, encouragement to exercise, did not do well. Mm. It, it did not turn out to be a good public health service intervention. There also is a theoretical research problem, which is that the uh, Dutch study found that the genetics of liability to exercise, willingness to exercise vigorously, track with mood resilience, which I suppose doesn't surprise anyone. Right. But it means, let's say you do one of these typical studies where you take some depressed patients and you get them to exercise and take some other ones and you have them play board games. The people who like vigorous exercise, who are drawn to it, will drop out of the board game side or the, you know, education and your illness side of the uh, experiment. And what that means is the people likely, it's called differential dropout, the people likeliest to get better will drop out of, the, of that side of the study, but mm -hmm. they'll remain in the side of the study where they're given exercise. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the people given exercise will do better. But it's not clear it's because of the exercise. It might be because you have a more favorable selection of patients who, uh, you know, research subjects who remain in the study. So these areas are very complicated. In some ways, studying antidepressant pills, you know, is sort of the easiest model in this double-blind uh, trial thing. There also is some, uh, this is a little off topic, but a very funny study about ketamine. Mm -hmm. so everybody thinks ketamine works for depression. Even mm -hmm. I think ketamine works uh, sometimes for depression. But somebody did something very clever. Ketamine was introduced. This is, a, you know, we know a drug that was an anesthetic, has some uh, sort of abuse as a party drug. And uh, somebody said, well, what if we take people who are depressed and need surgery? So they took a sample of people who were depressed, they were going to undergo surgery. The surgery wasn't brain surgery. It was something like, you know, they had to be given anesthetic because their broken leg was being repaired or something. Mm -hmm. And they used two kinds of anesthetic. For some patients, the control group, they gave a conventional anesthetic. For other patients, they gave the amount of ketamine that is thought to be antidepressant. And then if they needed more than that in the way of, uh, of uh, anesthetic, they gave them the conventional anesthetic. So you had two groups, one given enough ketamine to treat depression. These were all depressed patients, one given an irrelevant anesthetic. Well, they both did equally well. There was no benefit. But when you have no idea that you're on ketamine, when it's truly blind, you know, because ketamine makes people, uh, you know, sort of uh, have out-of-body experiences and mm -hmm. uh, so on. They know they're on ketamine. When you really don't know you're on ketamine, it, it had no effect on depression. Mm. So, you know, again, it's not that 
I don't like exercise, that I don't like ketamine. These things probably work. But if you believe that those things work and you have a respect for science, you'll really believe that conventional antidepressants work. They're much better validated. I guess the the, the last question I'll ask here is, is about that is, frustratingly, you, you kind of talked about some of these things, but frustratingly so, there's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of woo-woo. There's a lot of new age kind of you know nonsense out there about depression and antidepressants. I guess just the final kind of word on this from you is, is what do you think is, is, is definitely effective, maybe sort of, and definitely not at all, I guess, when it comes to depression and antidepressants? I, you know, I think all the antidepressants on the market are effective. I mean, I really do. I, I, uh, I, and we're lucky to have this selection we do because not everyone does well on the first one. Mm-hmm. Some people do well in combination. I mean, the other side of the story and the other thing that I bothered me as I was closing my practice is I think there clearly is too much polypharmacy. Mm-hmm. So some people... Just don't do well on antidepressants. And if you throw more and more at them, they're still not going to do well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt in a way I was making my living by having patients come in on six drugs and weaning them down to one or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would always do better. I mean, always, not not always. There was, you know, it could be a patient or two who, uh, where the other doctor who put them on the six medicines was right and I was wrong. But, um you know, I think if you are a patient and you are on multiple, multiple psychiatric medicines and people think you have multiple diagnoses, you know, get a second opinion. It's there is just too much polypharmacy out there. But do the medicines on the whole work much better than placebo? Yes, they do. There's a, if people want to see a, a quick essay about the overpromotion of placebo. I have only one article that I've written for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Just look up the Los Angeles Review of Books and Peter Kramer. And I, I have an essay that kind of reviews the overpromotion of uh, placebo as a treatment. Nice. Very, very nice. Well, the book, the, the new one is uh, Death of the Great Man. Uh, I believe it's out everywhere. And uh, the the 30th anniversary of uh, listening to Prozac is out uh, in the fall. So everyone get that as well. Uh, where's the best places to find you or best places to, uh, to get at you? I have a website, peterdkramer.com, and that has a way of contacting me and also a, a quick overview of, uh, of all the books. And, and this podcast will probably have a link on it. So Fantastic. Well, no, no. I mean, listen, I mean, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I, I greatly enjoyed it. Uh, wide ranging and uh, super, super fulfilling, at least for me. So, uh, so big thanks uh, for you for giving me your time. Thank you for having me and great questions. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. <laughs>